box to box stoppage time. Can you believe it? For Chemist Warehouse. Great savings every day. And Hoyt's Herbs and Spices. Changing the mood of food. And this could be the most crucial goal of all. Hello and welcome to box to box stoppage time. You're with Willem van Denderen, Michael Edgley and Derek Dyson to review the week that was in football as we select our games, teams and hot topics of the past seven days. Derek, you got the new ball for the game of the week and I think this one, it's fair to say, probably wasn't the game of the week but could well have been the game of the month and a few months before that. Yes, we've been dipping into the lower echelons of uh, the English football pyramid. Uh, We've obviously been following Wrexham and Notts County and this week it's the uh, League One uh, playoffs and the dramatic scenes at Hillsborough where Luton went into this one having won the first leg, um, not Luton, sorry, Peterborough, went in um, 4-0 up from the first leg. You know, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, but Sheffield Wednesday on a raucous in a raucous crowd, he certainly hadn't given up um, uh, their team's chances. In Sheffield, they got a ninth-minute penalty that was dispatched by Michael Smith. Um, and then in the uh, 25th-minute league, Gregory got on the score. She, uh, Peterborough fans getting a bit nervous at this point. And then it's Darren Moore who manages uh, Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, Rhys James, not the Chelsea one, another Rhys James. He got one the third. And this was getting like Liverpool Anfield versus Barcelona stuff um, at this point. Um Darren Moore kept throwing on more attacking subs, and it was uh, a long throw-in. You'll be pleased to hear that got into the box, got to Scottish midfielder Barry Bannon, uh, floated it to uh, substitute Aidan Finn, nodded it down to Liam Palmer, just to um, send the, start, the, the the crowd going wild. Um, Peterborough then decided to be the party poopers by getting a goal in extra time. Uh, only for Wednesday to get another goal in the 112th minute from uh, Callum Patterson. That's five all penalty shootout, and it was Dan Butler, the unlucky Peterborough player who hit the bar from the second spot kick. And it was uh, Wednesday fans that will uh, will be giddy now going to the final and all Yorkshire final versus Barnsley. And I mentioned Darren Moore before, a, a journeyman footballer. Um, most notably at West Brom. Um, and it's just great to see uh, another young manager, particularly another black manager, uh, to, you know, having success in the game. And uh, you know, we'll be keeping a close eye on Sheffield Wednesday as they take on Barnsley Willem. But what a, what a game, what a tie. Yeah, what a game. What about the other manager, Darren? Darren? Derek? Darren Ferguson. Uh, going into this one, obviously Darren Moore just says, geez, we're 4-0 down. Go and have a go and have a whack and see what can happen. But if you're if you're the boss man on the other side, I would be saying, boys, 4-0, you've proven you're good enough. You've done the work. Just go out there and play. But for goodness sakes, don't concede in the first 25. And what happens? I mean, pretty soft penalty. Yeah, it's it's just funny what happens in football. Uh hate to request it to my side futsal team but we've thrown away a few leads this season 2-0 up 3-0 up and it's just funny what happens if you concede a goal uh edge being uh the, the person on this pod is played to the highest standard will probably let, let us know that yeah it, it's funny what happens to your psychology and then you know i've seen arsenal do it they were 4-0 up at half time against newcastle united and drew four all uh so it is just incredible what happens and i'm sure it was nothing to do with the 
the, the, the team talk or, or anything like that. I just think nine minutes in and all of a sudden the crowd are up and you just start getting these doubts and the cascading feelings inside you. So I feel very solid, sorry for Peter, particularly because it, it looked like they'd pulled it out of the fire and we're going to get away with a 4-1 victory. Um, but yeah, it's devastating for them and jubilation for Sheffield Wednesday. What do they eat at the Wednesday, Derek? United very proud of the greasy chip buddy. Oh, look, I, I imagine some kind of pie uh, would be there and the and the Bovril. I've never been I've never been to Hillsborough, but um I have that was my first ever game, Arsenal versus Sheffield Wednesday. So they're one of those evocative teams in the league. And look, there's a lot of that happening at the moment with teams going up and down. Um, there are too many of these big teams to fit in the Premier League, but they're, they're they should certainly be playing, you know, you know, they could be playing championship football next season. And I think that's the minimum that they uh, that they deserve. I'm going to jump in ahead of you, Edge, with my game of the week. It's the two-legged tie between Coventry City and Middlesbrough. Uh, completely different to the, uh, what was it, 5-4 uh, between uh, the, the size that we just spoke about with Derek. But this one, certainly not pretty. Uh, attritional, committed, nil all through the first leg. Uh, and then as the second leg wore on, the return fixture at Middlesbrough, it was pretty clear that this was going to be uh, your one goal affair. And in the end, it was a really nice one. Gustavo Hamer, uh, some nice build-up play and then a, a nice cutback. Uh, and then the dying stages as desperate as you would uh, expect. Commentary now play Luton Town. And Edge, I think both sides will sort of not be able to believe their luck at having drawn the other, uh, if that makes sense. This is the best chance either of them uh, are going to get. Uh, nice story around Coventry's manager as well, Mark Robbins, who played for Manchester United and then found a home at, at Rotherham. He's led them from League Two since 2017. He's three and zip at Wembley in deciders and EFL Cup trophy finals. Uh, and yeah, Coventry looking like they could be back in it for the first time since Johnny Aloisi's days in 2001. Yeah, and a big club, Coventry. And, uh, you know, they've had first division experience uh, previously, back before it was the Premier League. And, um, yeah, so obviously Coventry, what a city, historic city, was flattened during World War Two under the Blitz. But, um, yeah, look, so, I mean, if you're a Coventry fan or Luton Tan fan, you'll, you'll have some sleepless nights leading up to this game for sure. Uh, another player to play for... Uh... Coventry, A-League fans of a certain vintage will remember Michael Mifsud, one of the great flops yes. uh, at Melbourne Heart. One of the players who didn't uh, do so well when he came was, it, was, he, was he the Maltese player? Bang. He, he has the Maltese goal-scoring record. He scored more goals for Malta than Tim Cahill has for Australia, but he was one of the great duds at uh, at, at Melbourne Heart when he came across as well, the, uh, Coventry, the I, do, I do remember them being relegated, and I remember... Fans being interviewed after the game, relegated from the Premier League, I should say, saying that they'll be back one day. And that was 20 years ago. So that young fan, I remember him vividly in tears, um, you know, had to wait a long time. But, you know, they, they've gone through absolute hell. Like the, the, some of the, the finances around the club, they've lost. But I still believe to this day they don't have control of their own stadium. Now, that now belongs to the rugby team, who's now gone defunct at the Wasp. So... Like the fact that they've managed to come through all of that, not have control of their own revenues from from get you know those from from the ground, and have got themselves back to this position, and they could be back in the Premier League. It's dreamland, it's dreamland for them. Hopefully, that young fellow's listening and is now an adult and is uh, partying on accordingly. Edge, where are you taking us? Well, we're going to Porto Alegre in Brazil for one of the great. Uh, Brazilian football derbies. It's Grêmio and Internacional. And I first want to play a little bit of audio because we love the South American commentary. Have a listen to this. Vitello. Por baixo, Luiz Suárez. Go! 
and that was Luis Suarez, who's playing for Gremio in the Brazilian uh, top flight. Uh, they won 3-1 over Internacional. Um, Gremio were down to 10 men after 50 minutes. But the reason I wanted to include this game was because of the nicknames. Um, the three colours of Pampas is the nickname for Gremio. Uh, however, their real nickname is the Bad Boys uh, because they've got a, a traditional following of um, fans that like to box on in the terrace and they do it uh, better than any in, the, in, the, in that competition. And the international nickname, uh, the unofficial nickname is the Monkeys and it's got a racial undertone that is not so... Uh, not so special, so we shouldn't promote that too much. But they're known as the monkeys uh, in the in the in the Port Alegre uh, terraces. But having said all of that, um, I had an opportunity when I was working in Brazil before the World Cup. I went to the opening of this new stadium um, in Port Alegre, and what was really interesting was they were playing a friendly match. International was playing a friendly match with the team from Uruguay, uh, the champions from Uruguay, and because there was two. Uh, teams from different nations, they decided to play the national anthems. When they played the Brazilian national anthem, nobody in the stadium sung it. And they actually sung over the top of the Brazilian national anthem, the local Rio Grande do Sul anthem, because they want to be a separate nation. They want to secede from uh, Brazil. So it's a very interesting political climate. It's a very interesting football climate. That is one of the big parts of Brazilian football and Grêmio, the Reimites. Grêmio 3, International 1. What about that commentary, William? You love a bit of goal! I know, I love Diego Costa now. I've loved the uh, Re- Re- revolution. Oh, yeah, Ramos, Ramos can definitely get in there. Maybe him. even old, maybe old Muskie, Rob Muskie as well. Muskie from when, the 90s. Yeah, Muskie would have been in. Do you remember when Rob Gilbert, uh, when Shwari, oh, no, no, when Ramos uh, uh, rugby tackled uh, Mo Salah in that uh, UEFA or the European Champions League final, and Salah dislocated his shoulder and had to go off the ground. You remember how Rob Gilbert squealed for the next six months about that? Uh, you mentioned Musket in the 90s there, Derek. Just to expand on the story that Nick Montgomery was telling us about the Warnock days, the other most famous thing to come out of that Warnock documentary, which you can still find on YouTube, is when they're playing against Millwall uh, and Musket headbutts Paddy Kenny in the tunnel uh, and... Warnock loses it. Everyone loses it, really. And then at the end of the game, uh, both were sent off. And at the end of the game, Warnock storms out on the pitch and approaches other players, including Paul Eiffel, who would go on to style and goes, that serves your right for Muska. Serves your right for Muska. Uh, well and truly, well and truly worth a watch. Uh, Derek, it is time now for your team of the week. Yeah, I've not done this all season, but I've, I've gone for Manchester City. Uh, I was surprised when you sent this one through. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I wanted to probably get out on the front foot with this one after the disappointing few weekends that it's it's been to be uh, be an Arsenal fan. I, I haven't done it all season. It's quite hard to give it to them because when you're so well run and so well resourced, you know, like you know, it seems quite trivial for Man City to be a team team of the week, uh, and maybe they should be the team of the week every week. Um, we, we tend to hand it around to teams that are maybe slightly off the radar or. Are doing something good but i just think with the the mauling of madrid last week which i know madrid haven't had a brilliant season uh excuse me particularly in la liga where quite a subpar barcelona team have basically run around in that league but it's still madrid it was still a, a game in the balance and city absolutely um absolutely mauled them and pep for a change didn't do one of his kind of weird like middle of the night tactical brainwaves he just played his strongest team and 
um, won the game. Then obviously they, they followed that up with uh, winning the Premier League this weekend, having not kicked a ball, but then went out and did the job over um, did the job over Chelsea. Um, and as we were talking about in the main show, you know, I, um, I don't. I don't revere them as much as the Manchester United in that era when Arsenal were toe to toe with them. That I felt Man United there was sort of a bit more of a narrative with them. That you know they'd pull themselves out of really tricky positions, you know, and the FA Cup semi final and Ryan Giggs and the Champions League final. So even though you hated them, you kind of begrudgedly respected them because of like how they were able to pull stuff out of the fire. This City team just don't need to do that. And I don't know, it feels to me a bit cold at times. Uh, they're not, I get the feeling they're not very well liked. Like if you're a fan of them, you love them. But I don't get the huge impression that, that, that fans all over the world absolutely buy in and love the Man City story. So, um, but that's, you know, leaving all that aside, they've had a superb season. I'm very surprised if they don't win the treble. We'll certainly be Manchester United in the FA Cup final. And Inter, we'll see what bag of tricks they've got. But, I think it will be a treble and a historic season for City. So, uh, begrudgingly, I give them a team of the week, finally. So much of what you said there is reflected in my team of the week, Derek. Melbourne City, I mean, it probably goes without saying, but well-resourced, well-funded. But I think Edge, unloved to a large extent. They are robotic. They're somewhat cold. They're a shell and an offshoot of, uh, of, of Manchester City. They're a magnificent team, really. Like, they were awesome. Um, Borussia, Valen Borussia. We haven't given him uh, enough credit. He was awesome with his um, with his with his set pieces and his crosses into the box. Lecky, um, a loved Socceroo, but is he a loved City player? Probably not. Uh, McLaren, clinical, machine like. Uh, the Max Burgess red card was terrible and ended the game. And from there, they absolutely went off and ran with it. But I remember when they were in the early years of City, when Hart and then the early years of City hadn't won anything, and the crowds just weren't rocking up. And the the uh, the refrain was always, "Wait until they start winning." then they'll be packed out. They couldn't have won any more and they'll, you know, go on to win plenty more over the next couple of seasons. But that hasn't been reflected uh, in the crowds. And I think that goes to the point that Derek speaks about uh, with the the big brother club, if you like. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, they're a really integral part of Australia's football ecosystem. So many socceroos have spent time at developing their craft. Aaron Moy, for example, Jamie McLaren, Matty Leckie. I mean, we can go on. There's many, many more. However... The public, you know, uh, you know, at the end of the day, um, Mel- Melbourne City is owned by the City Group. Uh, they have um, uh, ownership out of Abu Dhabi and uh, the Emirates. They're an Arab-owned uh, petrochemical, uh, you know, monolith. And I just think that the sporting public of Melbourne don't endear themselves to that narrative, and they don't really want them to do well, and they don't vote in. Um, by going to the games. I think that's what it is. And they need to work harder to build a community around that club. And I know the people at Melbourne City, well, they do work very hard on their community programs, but they just are lacking cut through. And I guess we only have to compare them to Central Coast and the impact that they've had in Gosford. It's a bit of a Cinderella story. And obviously the underdog made good is a great journey to be on if you're a fan, but Melbourne City, we have to, they are the benchmark for A-League men's professional football. They are, no doubt about it. They're unbelievable. But as a club with a narrative and a community, you know, they're last. Well, not last, Western United and MacArthur are behind them. But um, I'm just, um, 
you know, that's the way I explain why people don't go and watch Melbourne City. From all reports, Melbourne Heart were going to die. And it's maybe hard for me to speak on because I was a bit younger and wasn't following it as objectively. But I thought that had legs and I would have loved to have seen what that what, what how that went. Although they couldn't, you know, get a win on the board and they had a young Johnny Aloisian coach for a lot of it, even though it was a franchise, it felt like something of an authentic club. They had colours, they had, you know, a, a feel to them. Separate to Melbourne Victory, there was a, a rivalry there. Uh yeah, and you look at where the Mariners have gone and what the Jets have done when they've been up and about. I think that had legs. I think just importing the city shell, uh, the city structure, yeah, it, it to this day leaves me a little bit cold. Um, but as I say, team on the pitch. And Rado Vitasic is a great story. Uh, yeah, we'll see what they do over the next couple of weeks. Uh, your team of the week, please, Michael. Yeah, we're going to um, the women's football in Spain, Barcelona Femini. Uh, you might think this is a bit of a strange uh, team of the week because they actually lost on the weekend to Madrid 2-1. But the reason I'm shouting them out for my team of the week is that's the first loss they've had since June of 2021 in their league. They've been on a 62-game winning streak. So bravo to Barcelona Femini, but they did lose. And they lost after winning 62 games in a row. And any football team that's playing at an elite level, um, you've got to shout out that sort of performance. So their winning streak come to an end, but that's why I chose Barcelona Femini, the women's team at Barcelona, uh, their 62-game winning streak coming to an end. And I, I guess we have to celebrate a team, Derek, that has won 62 games in a row in an elite competition like the Spanish women's football. Yeah, well, I mean, we were talking about Man City earlier and their dominance of the men's game, but I feel like it's a, it's a different kettle of fish with this one. Yeah, they've got all the advantages, but um, I feel like they've, you know that, that, that's, a, that's a rock star team the, the Barcelona have gotten they are, I, I want I want to them a bit more I think in terms of what that project that they've put together and just how you know Barcelona for all their travails do tend to do sports teams quite well they've got like a range of sports teams that they run um so I'm glad that that, that particular outfit is uh having something they actually won the league in April they've got 85 points and a goal difference of positive 108 and they've got the Ballon d'Or winner, um, Alexis, uh, Alexis Patelis, who is their uh, main gun player in their team. So, well done, Barcelona Femini. Um, hot topic, Willem, are we up to that now? Uh, well, yes, we are. I'm going to throw back to Derek. And Derek, you're looking at me through the, through the screen with the same quizzical look that I'm looking at you with. How has Edge managed to not give Barcelona Femini Team of the Week in the 62 weeks they've won it and then has given it to them in the week that they've lost? But we won't hold him up on it. Uh, your Team of the Week... Another surprise that came through, not a, or rather your hot topic, uh, not a, a country you would associate with fan violence, but here we are. Yeah, well, I was watching those scenes uh, with, you know, West Ham's, you know, fine result over AZ Alkmaar as they went to the Europa Conference League final. And, yeah, for those of us that sneer at that tournament, I don't think anyone at West Ham is um, sneering about that result. And it's uh, quite a tantalising tie with them playing a Fiorentina um, in the final, but the story was off the pitch when the uh, a section of the AZ Alkmaar fans who were wearing kind of in a very tip, stereotypical way black hoods um, went up and tried to attack the, not the West Ham fans, but the West Ham kind of travelling delegation, uh, the wives, girlfriends, family members, etc. Um, and there is this one picture or video of this heroic West Ham fan, Nolsey, straight out of a like a football factory hooligan uh, Danny Dyer film 
he kind of held back like 10 or 20, 10 or 20 of these goons in hoods, hoods with his big arms and his big broad chest. And Damien, uh, sorry, uh, Declan Rice was giving him mad props um, after the game. But as you said, yeah, it was um, really unpleasant seeing these fans. And AZ had had a good run themselves, you know, in the tournament, not a not a fancy team by by any stretch and, you know, choosing to attack the West Ham um, uh, supporters and the, and the backroom team um, and also just other Dutch bands getting caught in the crossfire as well. Mikel Antonio and Aaron Cresswell actually went in to try and sort it out as well, whether that was the right idea or not. Let's leave that alone. But when you combine that with the fact that Ajax and Groningen had their game called off with nine minutes on the clock because fireworks were thrown on the pitch last week as well, or smoke bombs being thrown on the pitch. Um, crowd violence between Feyenoord and Ajax in the Dutch Cup semi-final uh, in April. Again, that's a big rivalry. Cigarette lighter hit Ajax midfielder Davy Klassen, and that caused a long delay to the match. So... Um, a game between AZ and Ajax, 150 fans were um, ch- were banned and arrested for chanting anti-Semitic slogans. So there's plenty of it. Willem, the the home of your of your your, your origins in in uh, in uh, um, Holland, and um, they think it they're putting it down to the uh, COVID restrictions and how young men in particular are needing to kind of burst out and. You know that that they're they're trying to sort of shake themselves off from being locked down, but there's got to be something more more sinister to that. We're not seeing similar problems around European football generally. I don't think. I mean, mm. lots of pitch invasions in the UK, but they you know generally kind of well well you know humoured and are in normally in very high uh, emotional situations like getting promoted. Um, but yeah, there's a problem in Dutch football, Willem, and we'll have to keep an eye on it. Yeah, no, most certainly. No, that's the first I'd, I'd heard of it over the past week. Obviously, yeah, as you say, mad props to Nolsey, uh, an overnight hero. But yeah, outside of that, no, a concerning one and and one to to keep an eye on. Edge, you're going to take us to one of the more unloved figures in, in world football who has continued to hang around year on year. Well, he's just endeared himself even further with the people who dislike him. Avram Glazer, who's the, one of the co-owners of Manchester United. They've been in the news a lot this year because they've been trying to sell the club. Um, He's actually appeared at two of Manchester United Cups this season, which is a bit of a rare sight for him to attend any matches. But uh, he went to see the Caribou Cup final um, for Manchester United. And he also flew in last uh, weekend for the Women's FA Cup final. Um, And when he flies in, the club pays for his arrangements. So it's been revealed that... um, £500,000 has been spent on Avram's private jet security and accommodation for those two outings from Florida to England. And you'd have to say, that's not a good look, Avram. You're worth hundreds of million US dollars. You reckon you'd jump on a scheduled first-class ticket and pay for it yourself? I mean, if there's any way of rolling up the fans any more than he's already done, you just do that. Five hundred thousand pounds. Give me a break. Yeah, we're a fair way from the railway workers of Newton Heath, there, Derek. Are we not? Yeah, I mean, obviously, Avra, uh, Avram Glazer's a, you know, he's got to be there. He's a huge staple, 
uh, factor in the game. He inspires the players as he <laughs> as he, he steps out into the director's box. So, and he's got to be fair, guys. He can't be an airline or Delta or dare I say it, British Airways. So yeah, he needs to be arriving in tip-top shape, like in succession. He needs to be sorting the shit out on his mobile phone, knocking back the whiskeys, and then getting ready to pump up his team when he gets there. So I think it's fair. Well said. Uh, my hot topic, Graham Arnold continues to lead the charge and bang the drum for a home of football in the country. Uh, Edgy spent his lifetime in the Australian game and he sees this not as his legacy, but as a legacy that he sees as critical and one that he really wants to drive home and use his position to make sure is a legacy piece so that when he's gone, uh, the next generation has this in place. Uh, he was asked about it by the ABC's or by Caroline Wilson on the ABC's Offsiders program on Sunday. We'll take a listen. But are you coaching with one arm behind your back? Um, in Two weeks ago, the Prime Minister announced a $230 million injection to build a precinct and a stadium in Hobart. Uh, I toured the Sydney Swans' new facilities in Sydney. I think they're the best now in the AFL. Yeah. And yet you're paying $1,500 a yeah. session to train at Leichhardt. You came home as homecoming heroes last year. You spoke rightly of having united the country with that Socceroos campaign. Mm. What will it take to get the government to come on board? And where Look, do you stand on this? I'm really, you know, happy for the AFL to get what they get and the Rugby League, the NRL in New South Wales to get what they get, but we get nothing. At the end of the day, you know, we don't get any high-performance money off, <clears throat> off the government. We've got... We don't have a home for the Socceroos. You know, I'm bringing players back from Europe that are top-class players and they've got the best training facilities in Europe and they come back. We stay in a hotel, obviously. Um, we've got no recovery centre. The boys have to get an ice bath, well, get ice put in their own bathtub in their rooms to recover from the flight and get ready for the game. So, you know, it's, it's something that I believe that uh, the only way forward for Australian football is we need a home of football that we can build the pathways for the kids. We're just looking at the elite level of the Socceroos and the Matildas, but the pathway is the most important thing. And unless, unless we fix the ingredients in the cake, and get that right, well, then the game will suffer. Off the back of that edge, Peter Philopoulos, great the chronic unfunding of a sport that outnumbers other codes in participation by an ever-growing margin and offers so much from a diplomacy perspective, as we've seen uh, just recently with the Socceroos heading to China, around the world deserves a bigger share of funding distribution. We are victims of our own success as a sport. Uh, he also went on edge to say... The $116 million home of the Matildas at La Trobe Uni is about to be operational imminently. So we've got to take what we can get. Ideally, you'd have everyone in the same house. But does having split sort of homes for the Socceroos and Matildas sort of speak to Annika Wells' recent point about disunified lobbying? Am I, am I pulling the wrong threads together there? Uh, no, you're not. I think we have to sort of um, uh, take a bit of a reflective um and sort of dig a bit deeper. So um, there's a lot of comparisons made about AFL government money that goes into AFL, in particular Stadia, New South Wales and Queensland with rugby league into Stadia. I guess the difference is that, um, for example, the Tasmanian stadium money that the federal government's put in, is, is it's got a political connotation to it as well because they're looking to shore up support uh, politically, and, and um, nobody wants to be known for, you know, knocking on the head a, a Tasmanian team in the AFL. Um, the Socceroos, they don't have that same political capital as a local, um, as a local team in Australia 
like an AFL team, for example, that has huge, huge uh, traction as a brand and can uh, can be influenced the people who support it. Oh, you know, I'm going to vote for the Labor Party because they've given $250 million to, you know, Tasmanian football so we can have a stadium and a team in the AFL. It's much more nuanced in, in, in soccer because the national team, we participate in the World Cup. It's the biggest sporting event in the world. Huge participation money comes, uh, you know, for to the federations who qualify for the World Cup. There's, you know, huge television rights bonanza. So um, there is a big money ticket for doing well as a national team. But I think the one area that Peter's referring to that I think we should um, get behind Football Australia is that the Socceroos can do so much for diplomacy in the region. I know this because I'm away um, with tour groups supporting the Socceroos in far-flung places in the Middle East and Asia and all over the world. And we see the impact of the Socceroos in the nations that we visit. I've said before on the on the program, Willem, many times that uh, a lot of people around the world, the first time that they come in contact with Brand Australia or what Australia is about is the soccer because we're a World Cup qualifier or a World Cup. You know, Australia doesn't enter the psyche of a lot of other nations around the world until the Socceroos pop, pop their head up in a in a in a game that's you know locally in their region. So um, I think they've got a huge role to play uh, in forging new links for in government diplomacy and, and and to be fair the federal government need to reward the socceroos and help them with their development pathways and graham he's got some traction at the moment and some credibility he's got some political gravitas uh, off the back of that world cup performance and he's right to raise a home in sydney in particular where the socceroos can get together um, uh, and spend time in elite facilities so they're not in their hotel bath, having a nice, having a nice bath, uh, you know, after they get off a plane, it can be in a proper facility. So, yeah, I think um, he's he's right to raise it. The federation's right to have a campaign around this, but I just think they need to be a little bit more nuanced about how they do it. Rob Gilbert will be back for the main show on Monday. By then, either Coventry City or Luton Town will be a Premier League side. We'll wrap all of that up. That? Yes, yeah, we'll have all the reaction there. Uh, we might drop into the world of Italian football as well with uh, a number of their sides in uh, contention to be in the finals of the Europa, the Champions League and the Conference League as well. Uh, and we'll be a week out from the A-League granny as well. So please do join us next time when we go from one end of the pitch to the other in the world game.